authoritarian influence in multilateral institutions, for instance in the United Nations Human Rights Council, has gathered momentum and poses a deepening threat to democratic and human rights principles. Repressive governments are determined to hobble mechanisms meant to ensure accountability for rights abuses and to repurpose the UN and its related bodies in ways that are aligned with authoritarian preferences. Both the Chinese Communist Party and the Kremlin have undertaken a long-term effort to subvert human rights norms on the international stage, project narratives that favor authoritarian values of repression and control, and oppose efforts that would examine their awful human rights records. This state of affairs is all the more relevant as the world gathers this month in New York for the annual UN General Assembly. This at a time when Russia is pursuing a genocidal war in Ukraine and China prosecutes systemic, widespread, ongoing atrocities against Uyghurs in the Xinjiang Autonomous Region. Given the determination of regimes like those operating out of Beijing and Moscow to neuter human rights mechanisms at the UN and other such institutions, the center of gravity for human rights standards and norms appears to be shifting in some very disturbing ways. I'm Chris Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the National Endowment for Democracy, and you're listening to Power 3.0, a podcast examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Rana Sue Inboden, a senior fellow with the Robert Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas, Austin, at an event organized by the International Forum in July to discuss her insightful and timely report, Defending the Global Human Rights System from Authoritarian Assault, How Democracies Can Retake the Initiative. We were exceptionally fortunate to have Sophie Richardson of Human Rights Watch join this conversation as a discussant. Ranasu Inboden and Sophie Richardson make for a powerful combination of expertise on this critical subject. This Power 3.0 episodes highlights key insights offered by Ranasu and Sophie from our conversation. To watch the full event, visit the National Endowment for Democracy's YouTube channel, at National Endowment for Democracy, and to read the excellent report authored by Ranasu Inboden, visit www.ned.org ideas. So it's my great pleasure to welcome everyone today for the release of a new report titled Defending the Global Human Rights System from Authoritarian Assault, How Democracies Can Retake the Initiative. It's authored by Ranasu Inboden. We're delighted to have Sophie Richardson with us as well to discuss this report, incredibly timely given the extent to which authoritarian regimes have mobilized to challenge democratic and human rights norms. And so this report, I think, strikes just the right chord to stimulate discussion, offer some fresh ideas, and importantly, offer some opportunities for uh, competing in an environment in which China, Russia, and other authoritarian regimes uh, themselves are competing quite actively. There are a number of dimensions to the challenge we're facing today. Some of this, I would say, is connected to the operations and standards of key institutions that we thought would drive democracy and human rights in a positive trajectory coming out of the 1990s. Another part of this are the narratives that authoritarian regimes have developed over time to subtly and sometimes directly challenge um, what should be uh, universal human rights norms and standards. 
And here, too, I think there's a good deal of work to be done uh, to refresh the arguments that we make from uh, free societies to defend these values in the face of this competition. So I'm not going to go into too much more detail at this point because we have the author here with us. So it's really my great pleasure now to uh, introduce Ranasu Inboden, who's a senior fellow with the Robert Strauss Center for International Security and Law at the University of Texas, Austin. She'll offer some observations on the top order uh, points from her report. And then we'll turn things to Sophie Richardson from Human Rights Watch. We'll have a bit of a conversation with that. I'm really pleased to hand things over to Rana. Thank you, Chris, and thank you to the National Endowment for Democracy for having me and giving me this opportunity to author this report. I'm honored to be here um, with Dr. Richardson, who has been a champion of these issues and has been an ally in, on many fronts. I'm going to frame my remarks uh, around one realization, four manifestations, and four recommendations. The realization. While the U.S. withdrawals from the Council under the Bush and Trump administrations were driven by some legitimate concerns about the Human Rights Council, the result has been that the influence of Russia, China, and other authoritarian nations has mushroomed. I can empathize with the decision of, uh, to withdraw from the Council because, in fact, in my book, I trace how Russia... Pakistan and China around 2005, 2006, held back some of the most promising um, proposals of what the new Human Rights Council would look like, including stripping it of any human rights membership criteria. But at the same time, the human rights regime is not static. It is dynamic. And what is happening now is that authoritarian nations have taken advantage of this vacuum and have gone on the offensive. So they're trying to attempt to reset the boundaries of the human rights regime, change ideas, and change practices. And the premise of my talk and report is that democratic nations can, cannot fix the human rights system by boycotting it, but they can improve it through vigorous participation. And in my book, I document early on how the EU was actually able to do this. In 2006, during the first session of the Council, China introduced um, a proposal that would have nearly killed the use of all country-specific resolutions. Their proposal was specifically that one-third of all Council members needed to support a resolution just for it to be tabled, and that it a country-specific resolution could only be passed by a two-thirds majority. That would have paralyzed the Council's ability to take action on country-specific issues. And the EU, by being in the room and saying, no, this is not okay with us, was able to hold that, uh, hold that back. Um, now let's get into some of the manifestations. Altering and shaping key ideas within the human rights system, Russia has used zombie election observation missions to try to, uh, to affirm flawed elections and confuse people about election integrity. They've also advanced an idea of protecting traditional values to justify resisting the universality of human rights. And since 2017, China has introduced nine resolutions that contain regressive ideas uh, about human rights. I refer to these as Shiisms. 
such as win-win cooperation and the community of common destiny. And even though these sound innocuous they're, or vague, they're actually quite harmful because they represent views that prioritize state-level cooperation over protecting individuals' sovereignty over international scrutiny and dialogue over accountability. China's conception of win-win cooperation leaves little room for states to hold each other accountable, and it leaves states winning by cooperating. And then we're left asking, who are the losers? And that would be the human rights victims, because they lack any ability to find meaningful redress in the international system. Another manifestation has been the growth of an illiberal coalition in the council. It goes by the moniker the like-minded group, and they are like-minded about holding the human rights system back. In the 1990s, in the late 1990s, this group numbered only about 20. And now we have seen that the, this group is usually able to attract support from about 50 nations. And the group's impact can, can be felt in a number of ways. Um, they act as a mutual defense coalition so that whenever one of them comes under scrutiny in the council, the others reflexively flood the council with praiseworthy comments or platitudes that drown out statements of concern from other countries. And the group regularly takes positions in the council that prioritizes sovereignty over monitoring and allowing investigations, chips away at the universality of human rights by asserting that the import of unique and particular cultural, religious, or national conditions and they are fixated with capacity building and technical assistance at the expense of accountability. And the most active states have been China, Russia, Cuba, Pakistan, Egypt, as well as other nations like India and South Africa. The LMG has been weakening the use of country-specific scrutiny, um, including all forms of scrutiny, including resolutions, special sessions or hearings, and special procedures. And they accuse the West of using these kinds of country-specific tools uh, to pick on them and hold them to a different standard. China was able to tap into this sentiment among the, this liberal coalition um, that country-specific scrutiny is a form of imperialism um, when it countered the resolution on Xinjiang. Um, and the risk is that these nations are turning the Human Rights Council into a venue that focuses on anemic dialogue and with such a heavy emphasis on capacity building and technical assistance that they're trying to convert the Human Rights Council into a mere service provider for governments and there's without any room to hold states accountable. As an example, Saudi Arabia and the UAE recruited enough votes um, for a resolution on Yemen that they were able to replace um, a resolution that would have continued the investigative powers for the special procedure looking into atrocities in Yemen. Instead, they were able to get a resolution passed that focused on mere capacity building um, and technical assistance in Yemen. While there's definitely a role in some places around the world for capacity building and, and assistance, all too often we see that human rights abuses persist because of lack of political will, or even worse, a willfulness to commit them. Now I'll turn to the solutions. 
At the outset, I said that we need uh, participation from established democracies to engage in the system, but just mere engagement is not enough. We need to see robust strategic participation despite the failings of the Human Rights Council. Um, I noted that uh, in the report that when the uh, Obama administration decided to rejoin the Human Rights Council, I was doing interviews in Geneva a couple of years later, and numerous Geneva-based diplomats of other countries and human rights organizations, even ones that didn't want to say so, acknowledged that the Human Rights Council functioned better with a proactive American uh, stance. And so I think the challenge is not just to the United States, but other established democracies. It is if when these countries are in the council, they can protect it and continue building it up. As an example, the special procedures, which are um, composed of independent experts assigned to either a country or a thematic issue, those mandates come up for renewal. For thematic ones, that's every three years. For country ones, that's once a year. And these independent experts are only able to do their jobs well if their mandates remain robust and vibrant. Yet we see that um, authoritarian nations, whenever the resolutions come up, they will try to alter and dilute that language. And so if we want, for example, the special rapporteurs on freedom of expression or torture, to still have vigorous authority, democratic nations need to be there strengthening that language, of making sure that there is not a rollback in um, the investigative powers. The special procedures in particular have been very good at speaking out on, on China. Since 2016, there have been 22 public statements by the special procedures on China, and in many cases, it the joint statements drew 40 nations or 50 nations and spoke about the atrocities with great alarm and tried to draw attention to steps that China could take to show that it, 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 would, uh, it would provide information and some redress. I would also say that aside from, aside from China, when we look at uh, the other issues that the special procedures are, could be positioned to address, everything from the right to privacy, especially in the digital, digital information age and the spread of digital repression and threat of transnational repression, we definitely need to build up these parts of the human rights uh, system that are positioned to protect it. I would also say that liberal democracies should, need, should be much more planful. So they need to be anticipating openings throughout the human rights regime. That would mean uh, elections for the Human Rights Council, planning several cycles in advance, identifying strong countries to run for election, um, and also make so that there's a good choice of nations with strong records instead of a what is called a clean slate, where the number of seats equals the number of candidates. There should also be uh, planning for openings in the special procedures. Usually those, those uh, individuals serve for a maximum of about six years. 
And so making sure that there is a roster of qualified people to recruit for that and encourage them to apply. Same thing with election to the treaty bodies. Those are the, those are the committees of experts who are assigned to uh, review a country's compliance with ratified human rights treaties. We need to keep those healthy and robust as well. Um, I would also say that China and Russia have corralled some of the states um, into their camp, not because all of them are hardcore autocrats, but partly by lavishing diplomatic attention on them. And the United States and other democracies can start to push back in a similar way, reaching out to smaller states and less traditional allies, going on a listening tour in Geneva to identify potential areas of common ground, um, areas where they could spearhead initiatives jointly. This would help coalesce a uh, cross-regional and diverse coalition of nations and civil society that are really committed to defending human rights and democracy in multilateral institutions. This would also help counter the effort by Beijing and some of the authoritarian nations that, to create a sense of division between the wealthier democracies and the developing world. And it would also discredit some of the LMG arguments about Western, quote unquote, human rights imperialism. This could also help draw some of the nations away from the like-minded group. As I mentioned, not all of them are hardcore authoritarians. Many of them identify with the like-minded group simply out of a sense of global South solidarity. Um, I would also say that the authoritarian nations have been investing heavily in, in their effort to roll back the human rights system. And so we need to see a similar democratic response. This would require staffing up missions. So for, as an example, Russia and China both have more staff in Geneva than the US. As of 2022, the PRC mission had 81 staff, Russia had 62, and the US had 44. So expanding this kind of staffing will also position uh, missions to resist some of China's uh, initiatives and efforts. Uh, as an example, in September 2020 and 2021, China was forced to withdraw two resolutions in the Human Rights Council, one that focused on, quote unquote, people-centered approach to human rights and the re realization of a better life for everyone. And this was done by repeatedly asking questions about what do these phrases and concepts really mean? And then I think an awareness around the globe that these were not these are not ideas that we want to continue to help shape the Human Rights Council and, and its practices. I would also say that parallel to these diverse government coalitions, it would be great to see a similar effort among the global south, um, where human rights organizations and the developed democracies reach out to their counterparts in the global south, both to partner with them, but also in in, in areas where it is needed to help build their expertise and capacity about how to navigate the Human Rights Council. It's, the UN can be extremely Byzantine. Um, and so doing training and explaining how do, you submit, uh, uh, how do you submit reports to treaty bodies, how do you submit um, UPR information, that's the Universal Periodic Review, 
all of those things could help energize Global South uh, civil society organizations. And then I would uh, say that democracies need to be prepared to play a long game um, and, and make this a strategic and principled investment that is not only, that doesn't shift from administration to administration. I would also caution the United States against um, framing this in terms of geopolitics. Uh, that will just force nations into the uncomfortable position of choosing between the U.S. Um, and China. Um, instead, I think it should just be framed as a principled uh, commitment to, to human rights in the multilateral system. I would also say that um, China and Russia have played a long game in many other ways by uh, take, taking up positions that they know were of interest to other countries. So, for example, in 2006, even though China had never uh, faced the specter of a special procedure assigned to it, it did serious battle um, during that first session of the Human Rights Council resisting uh, country-specific special procedures in, encouraged, uh, encouraged a review of all of the country-specific procedures with a view of ridding the council uh, with, of them. And that caused a number of countries, particularly Malaysia and Pakistan, to, to thank China for going out of their way to, to, defend these, to defend the smaller nations, the global south, from this kind of human rights scrutiny. Um, I'll, I'll leave it at that so that there'll be some time for Sophie to supplement and um, take questions from all of you. Thank you. And I'd like to thank you, Rana. It was a great and excellent summary. The full report is out, as I mentioned. And you can find it online as well at www.ned.org. And let's turn it over to Sophie now. Great. Thank you, uh, Chris, first of all, for asking me to join you. It's always lovely to be here at the Forum at the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, Rana, there's nobody better on earth to tackle this. And unsurprisingly, I think you did an incredible job of explaining a truly Byzantine set of institutions, but also giving people a sense of what the politics are, but I think most importantly, what's at stake? You know, people ask us, you know, aren't these institutions just, uh, you know, is it thankless? Does anybody really care? Why do they matter? You know, to which we say, you know, as long as particularly human rights activists and victims and survivors of human rights violations from across China come to us and want to take their cases to those institutions, we are absolutely going to do our best to make sure that those institutions proceed with maximum integrity. Uh, and I, I want to thank you not just for this report, but also you know, your work has been hugely influential within Human Rights Watch as you know, my colleagues who work all over the world are having a harder time advancing certain kinds of issues, even if they don't specifically have a China focus to them, where it's the Chinese government sometimes in collaboration with like-minded governments altering the institutions or manipulating them in ways specifically or, or perhaps worst to make the pursuit of accountability for serious human rights violations harder, right? I think my colleagues across the organization now see the threat that Beijing presents across these different institutions, even if you're not talking about a China-specific human rights violation. So thank you for your incredibly important scholarship. Uh, but I think a document like this that also really has the potential to inform you know, debates on the Hill. I see we have some Hill friends here. Um, and in democratic governments. 
I, I especially would encourage people to look at the, the comments specifically about accountability. Um, I actually read a draft of this report while watching Chinese state media try to wrap its head around Prigozhin making his way to Moscow. Uh, you know, I think we live in a time when the need for accountability for serious human rights violations is overwhelming. We need institutions that can respond to these kinds of threats, which we know are not going to get processed you know, through wholly domestic means. <clears throat> Uh, maybe the one other observation I'll make, because I think there are probably a lot of different uh, issues and, and questions to ask about this, is really the challenge of democracies trying to work on these problems. Uh, and it's, it's for a couple of different reasons. First of all, I think people in democracies don't necessarily appreciate these institutions because they don't have to rely on them to a large extent. I wouldn't say exclusively. Uh, you know, shout out to the special rapporteur on, on counterterrorism who just did a great report on uh, torture at Guantanamo because no part of the U.S. government was going to do that. Uh, you know, so I don't mean to suggest that democracies are perfect, but, but generally people in democracies have a free press. They have courts they can go to. They don't necessarily need to rely on these institutions. And so I think the level of interest or political support is fairly low. It's not necessarily a natural constituency. But I think also the kind of response to the authoritarian assault that democracies can mobilize together is precisely the kind of long-term initiative that's hard for democracies to sustain over time, right? To commit to two, three, four, five administrations out, you know, beyond a particular electoral cycle. And so maybe we can talk, one thing we could talk about a little bit is what you know, kind of a coalition to protect this system could look like. Is it an agreement about making sure the slates are always competitive? Is it about defending international human rights law? Is it about you know, who gets appointed to certain positions? Is it, you know, does it proceed according to principles or specific initiatives and what that might look like over time? But congratulations on publishing a fantastic report that I think you know, will help catalyze some support to solving this problem. What I would pose as an initial question is the fact that, uh, and I think you both have really eloquently zeroed in on how this is a systemic issue because in a sense, to the extent that the Chinese authorities and authoritarian governments in other well-resourced countries like Russia are able to reshape the assumptions, the language that's used, the people who are actually in charge of, say, entities making decisions on the future of digital uh, life and these kinds of things, um, it's much harder all in all for highly pluralistic, distracted democracies to lock in and um, maybe focus in the way that the authoritarians have, especially when you now have someone like Vladimir Putin, who's almost in power for a quarter century. The leadership in China has its um, feet squarely in place for quite some time. They're able year after year to pursue their preferences, which as Sophie alluded to, are not checked by local political opposition or um, independent media in meaningful ways, even if those countries may have um, those institutions in the breach. It's really um, um, difficult because the authorities are using so much resource at home, but in the last 10 to 15 years, they're also investing abroad, including in the UN um, entity. So what sorts of things should we understand about what doesn't happen out in the wider world if, say, these UN bodies aren't functioning in the way we might have imagined they would have from the perspective of the 1990s? 
What does it mean for ordinary people, for civil society? I'll just give one example, and this is more of a New York-based uh, UN uh, entity. It's the UN NGO Committee. And I tracked um, this committee over a period of time, about five years, where I, even though the like-minded group is mainly active in Geneva in those human rights bodies, I also noticed that the same set of countries were in the UN NGO committee and were blocking NGO applications to gain UN accreditation. UN accreditation allows civil society organizations to attend events, to host side events, to access the proceedings of the UN Human Rights Council. And I tracked that like-minded group countries were responsible for blocking about 1,000 of those applications. Um, I think that's a pretty um, surprise. That I was surprised by that number. Um, some of the country, some of the countries had blocked applications for about a decade. Um, in fact, there was a, a human rights-related organization that finally got um, got through after about ten years um, of authoritarian blocking. And actually, this this gave me hope because the reason they got through is. The U.S. and other uh, democracies got together, and um, once the U.N. NGO committee again blocked the applications of a number of them, a group of countries came together and championed about five or six of those applications, took, took it to the U.N. ECOSOC, which is the parent body of the NGO committee, and said, we want to call for a vote on this. Um, ECOSOC overturned the NGO committee's blocking. Um, and I, I think that shows that the, the greater community of nations does affirm the role of civil society. Um, and so I thought that was a great example of as much as it was, um, you know, civil society groups had been blocked, it was also a great example of what can be done with creative, vigorous diplomacy. Great example. I guess, Chris, I'll, I'll add two thoughts to this about what, you know, what the world looks like if this problem isn't solved. You know, one uh, immediate one that takes up a lot of, of, of time and concern for us is the idea that there would never be an investigation into the Chinese government's inflicting some of the most serious human rights violations, uh, crimes against humanity. Some people do refer to the situation in the Uyghur region as genocide. Uh, that there would be no investigations or possible accountability you know, for, for gross systemic widespread violations against civilians uh, that I think contributes to a sense of impunity uh, within the second most powerful government in the world. Uh, but also, I think one of the, the less well-examined trends at the moment, I wish we had more time and, and, and resources to look at it, are some of the, the assaults or encroachments, is probably a better word, that I think the Chinese government is starting to make to actual interpretations of international human rights law itself. Uh, you know, there, there are bodies that sit in Geneva that interpret the conventions and, you know, find ways of amending them, improving them, weakening them, challenging them. Um, and I think the idea that uh, Xi Jinping gets to rewrite international human rights law because other people just weren't paying attention <laughs> uh, is, is deeply problematic. I think those are some of the real world implications, not just for people across China, but for people around the world. And in a way, you're suggesting that this project is larger than we imagine, either because democracies haven't been able to focus enough or because the 
in a sense, the dots haven't been connected. So the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is in essence creating new law almost by default in some ways, agreeing, for example, to share watch lists of their unfavored um, activists, um, testing the understanding of how refoulement should work. Uh, these are all things that have happened gradually and slowly over time, but in the absence of being challenged, they can actually become the new norms. And I think in your report, Rana, you, if I'm understanding it correctly, were suggesting that the reshaping of norms and standards is already pretty well underway. And so what else do you think we should be doing? And I say we collectively, not just laying this on uh, governments, but I think these are, these are actually questions for democratic societies to take on, and because we can, um, if we choose to. So what do you think we should be prioritizing, in a sense, when there's so many competing priorities um, to start to maybe bend the curve in a more positive direction that would affirm uh, democratic and human rights values rather than just see them drift into the ether? Um, that's a great question. I would say that you're, you're right. We're already seeing um, China rewriting these ideas and norms and standards. And that's why I mentioned the resolutions that China has been able to get through the council. You know, that's a very new phenomenon. 2017 is when it started. Um, and really, it, it, when I was researching earlier periods, China was much more low profile. Yes, they always defended themselves, but they were not attacking the human rights system the way we now see it. Um, I would say that, uh, what do I want us to be doing? Well, the, I, I did want to affirm the US on um, rejoining UNESCO. Um, that is an important body where even where ideas about culture, about um, academic freedom are taking shape. And I have been hearing from a number of uh, people that China was trying to dilute uh, some of the norms around academic freedom. So I'm very pleased to see that the US is involved there. I, I mentioned staffing up missions. I think aside from staffing up, investing in the people who, are, who um, take those positions, letting them develop uh, deep expertise on the UN, and also how to engage with other nations in the UN. Uh, I was once in Geneva um, doing an interview in, in the Serpentine Bar, and um, someone said, oh, look, there's, there's the axis of evil. And um, it was like a cabal of a few countries, and they said, oh, they're all good friends because they're allowed to keep doing the, sa the same rotation and develop expertise. Um, and I think uh, we need to let diplomats in democratic countries develop their expertise and really learn how to, how to lobby and how to get initiatives um, done in the Human Rights Council. Um, I would also say that civil society, um, working with the Global South, um, developing more partnerships, doing more training, and, and not abandoning um, civil society just because uh, their country is no longer, uh, has kind of graduated from being a weak or fragile democracy. We need, we need to, if the U.S. as a whole were, were focused more on consolidating democracy, we would have a larger family of nations to work with in the U.N. Human Rights Council that would champion these values along with us. Thanks for that, Sophie. Yeah, two quick points. One actually follows on what Ron was just saying about civil society. Uh, 
I don't know how many people here uh, or, or listening follow the universal periodic review process, which is the process whereby every government undergoes its a review of its record at the council every, it's every five years now, four or five years, depending on how you can bend the calendar. Uh, but one piece of that process invites input uh, from civil society all over the world. And one thing that I found quite encouraging in China's last review, which was in 2018, was that the, the, the nature and the number of civil society groups from all over the world was much greater and more diverse than it had previously been. It was not just groups like ours, for example, or, or uh, you know, groups that focused for a long time or quite specifically on China, but in fact, there were lots of uh, civil society groups, for example, from the Americas who worked on environmental issues or on debt relief commenting on their own government's interactions with Chinese state actors or on problematic Chinese infrastructure projects, for example. And I think there's a, there, there's a lot of work to do there. And maybe you know, this is the kind of, some of the kind of work that the NED can help encourage. Um, but at a, at a broader level, what do I think democracies, not just the US, but democracies in general need to be doing? They need to make sure that every norm, fund, agency, office, special procedures, slot, you name it, in New York and in Geneva, the high commissioner, the secretary general, are pro-human rights. Uh, and that, that there are real pro-rights people and ideas filling those spaces. You know, there are a lot, there's so many different entry points for problematic actors to undermine separate parts and separate levels of all of these institutions. And it's amazing how much damage, you know, a single individual uh, can do. But also, you know, you mentioned this earlier, the idea that, for example, uh, Human Rights Council elections are held every year in October, and we already know that the Asia slate will be closed, that, that only the number of governments for which there are slots will be running. China is running for re-election. And that's particularly tragic in my view because each time uh, the Chinese government has put itself forward uh, for election, it has managed to get elected, but it has lost considerable support over time. Significant support, so much so that last time around had one other government run, it is entirely possible that Beijing would have lost. Right, so I think having that kind of competition, having other governments put themselves forward, making sure that you know credible scholars uh, from democracies who are truly committed to human rights are put forward as candidates for special procedures slots, all of these things matter. And democracies tend to look at these very much in isolation or, oh, wait, we've got to get the list in next week. We haven't thought about this a year ago and built up a bench or coordinated it. There's a lot of work to be done, but it's doable. It's totally doable. And thank you for that, Sophie. And also uh, just raising uh, Ned's role in this. Ned has made a priority and is really featuring how to bolster the ability of local actors to understand China's engagement, its economic statecraft, and how to respond in a way that's consistent with the local conditions. And this will be something that we continue to um, invest in and make a priority over time. So. Um, You've both described, and the report really describes this so well, um, how the authoritarians are, in essence, really looking to hollow out the substance of these human rights um, mechanisms, both in the UN system, but I think we see this also with the Office of Democratic Institutions and Human Rights at the OSCE, 
at the OAS as it relates to Cuba and Venezuela and such governments. And this is, this is in, in a sense, a, both a global, a regional, systemic challenge. In China's case, the report talks about the different ways um, and instruments that are used to either induce, cajole, or even intimidate countries to take certain positions as it relates to Beijing's human rights behaviors and actions and um, posture. China's economic statecraft is a big part of its toolkit globally, transcends the UN context. I just wonder, as it relates to the uh, Human Rights uh, Council, what else we collectively might be doing, both in a governmental and non-governmental sense, to help audiences understand the, the nasty side of this economic statecraft, which more and more scholars and analysts and investigative journalists are bringing into the public light. My sense is that that is um, underappreciated. Um, that's a great question. And, you know, for years, um, ever since the 1990s, when after Tiananmen, China began to face uh, resolutions in the commission, China used economic uh, in incentives and punishments to try to get countries to behave the way it wanted. Sometimes it has been effective in getting countries to engage in preemptive obedience. Just the just the fear of uh, being shut out of the Chinese market is sometimes enough to get a country to say, I'm not signing on to that letter expressing concern about Xinjiang. Um, I, think, I think it's a real fear. I think also, you know, China has threatened industrialized democratic countries um, that they will be shut out of the Chinese market or that maybe they won't um, buy wheat or certain airplane. Um, but China this does this with the global south and you know belt and road even though numbers are hard to come by exact numbers you do see that uh, this has created a shadow over over the world um, especially countries that really rely on that kind of investment or aid um, but I will also say that China makes this uh, explicit so there's even we even have examples I don't know, Sophie might be able to even, she probably has one in her office of these note verbals that um, China will kind of circulate in Geneva. Um, and it can be anything about, um, so criticizing a particular special procedure by name, saying that they were going beyond their mandate because they spoke out about China. But China also will send these out um, in ahead of any scrutiny that it might be facing and will say something like, you know, be, be aware that um, your, your vote or if you attend that event could affect bilater bilateral interests, including your, your country's, um, you know, economic relationship with us. Um, so China is very active in using this kind of um, influence. I think there are a couple of possible responses or, or ones that, that, that we will offer up either verbally or in terms of research. Um, you know, we now do work all over the world documenting Chinese government harms, not just inside China, but in other countries too. And I think being able to say, particularly to a government that is reluctant to criticize Beijing, here's what these same authorities are doing to people inside your country. 
uh, or, or you know, are the kinds of environmental harm or indeed the economic harms that result from these engagements, you know, to ch try to change that calculation uh, is certainly uh, one effective response. I think there are also governments that really do genuinely care about the institutional integrity, particularly of the council. Uh, and, that, and it's for different reasons. I mean, some because I think they believe they have, they have benefited from it and or they've contributed to the establishment of these institutions. So they care that they are seen to be credible. And you know, one of the points that we have made, particularly with respect to trying to encourage scrutiny of Chinese government human rights abuses uh, towards Uyghurs and others, is to say, we understand that you may be reluctant to criticize a P5 member state, even when you're plenty comfortable criticizing other P5 member states, but to say no state is above the law, right? This institution is designed for these discussions. It's what it's here for. And if you're not going to use it for that, then you are contributing to the problem. Uh, and some of them will find that a, a sort of motivating factor too. Uh, and then sometimes it's just a question of sort of trying to match and exceed uh, the kinds of diplomacy that, that Beijing will itself offer up. And it's worth noting that the economic coercion has been applied in so many instances, but they include against Norway on the heels of the Nobel Prize being awarded to um, Liu Xiaobo, all the way to Lithuania being put into the, the really a, a, an incredibly difficult vice. Lithuania is a country of less than 3 million people that was just put into Beijing's crosshairs and really withstood that pressure incredibly well. And there's probably things we can learn from these episodes that we may not be necessarily collating um, for other purposes. If, if I can just add a sure. quick thought on that. You know, governments will tell us, uh, indeed they will sometimes sort of you know, uh, unburden themselves and tell us how much they dislike being bullied or patronized or, you know, and they're quick to say they don't like it from any other government, but that they particularly dislike you know, being told by Beijing that they should vote this way or they shouldn't talk to that journalist or do the other thing. So there were so many <laughs> outstanding points made in this excellent discussion. I'm, I wouldn't be able to summarize it in a meaningful way, but I might just emphasize one point that uh, Rana Inboden emphasized in her report, which is that these regimes, starting with China and Russia, put extraordinary effort and purpose and resource into hollowing out, neutering, and undercutting these entities. And it really suggests how important they are by virtue of that and how important they think they are. And so a way, if you reverse engineer the thinking of the authoritarians, the democracy should understand their value on the other side and meaningfully support them that way. Couldn't think of a better pair to have this discussion with um, on a great report that I would commend everyone here to. And, um, Hopefully this will inspire and stimulate even more discussion on these important issues. I really want to thank Sophie Richardson and Ranisu Inboden, especially for authoring the report, being such a great partner, and to everyone with us here in person and those who joined us online for this terrific discussion. Thanks to everyone again. Thank you. To watch the full audience Q&A with Rana Sue Inboden and Sophie Richardson, visit the National Endowment for Democracy's YouTube channel. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on such defining issues for democracy, check out our companion blog, Power 3.0 Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence, and additional resources on the NED website at www.ned.org.
facebook.org slash ideas, and join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us at Think Democracy. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies at the National Endowment for Democracy. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please leave us five stars and a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, especially Amaris Rancy, Sidney Diller, and Mike Dugan. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll tune in again next time.